Again, good morning. Uh, If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out with me, please, and turn to either uh, Colossians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 5. And these scriptures will also be on the screen behind me here in just a moment. But if you'd like to turn to Colossians 3 or Ephesians 5, those will be the first scriptures that we will read together here in just a moment. It is good to be together and it's good to worship together. And we're going to be doing some of that as we go through the lesson this morning Uh, Being together, obviously, but also worshiping together uh, as we think about uh, one aspect of our worship. I've heard uh, in my 30-something years of remembering, I've heard a lot of lessons on heaven in my life, uh, dozens of lessons, I would say. And some of those lessons have been really, really good. Um, And some of those lessons, I'll just say, were not as good. Some of those lessons really inspired me and motivated me and say, I want to go there. I want to be there. And others of those lessons uh, didn't motivate me as much uh, to want to go to heaven based on the way it was described in the sermon. Am I alone on that? Uh, Anybody else have had that experience too? When I was growing up, one of the descriptions of heaven that I heard quite a bit, um, not just at the local congregation, but other places, Uh, was that it was a place where we're all singing. And I remember one of those descriptions was uh, something along these lines. Now, this is filtered through from a teenager till now, but I think it was something like, in heaven we will all be singing praises to God at the top of our lungs for all eternity. And I thought to myself, I know I'm supposed to really be inspired by that and want to do that, but as a baby Christian, I was like, I'm not sure if that really sounds as awesome as it's supposed to, to me. Um, I grew up in a small congregation, you know that, and, and most of the people there sang really well. There was good singing even for a small group. I was, frankly, one of the weakest singers out of the whole congregation. And once I became a Christian, it was expected of me to start leading singing. And so I did some of that, quite a bit of that, mostly poorly, if I can be uh, honest with my own uh, abilities there. Uh, And so, you know, singing was great and I enjoyed singing. But thinking about heaven as being a place where we're all singing wasn't something that was super motivating. When I was a senior... um, I went to senior days at Florida College, and so this was an opportunity for seniors in high school to go to this college and uh, be there and see what, was, what it was all about. And one of the traditions there where the vast majority of the student population and teachers are, are Christians, um, there's a place in Tampa where this college is located called the Mosey. It's the Museum of Science and Industry, and they've got this big Omnimax domed theater, and this is the outside of that theater. Well, you see that there are breezeways underneath, and if you go underneath this theater, there's an amphitheater underneath, and it's uh, circular, and it's got these steps that go down. And one of the traditions for senior days was for the student body and all of the visiting seniors to go to this amphitheater and sit down in a big circle with four or five hundred people there, mostly college-age kids, but a few adults as well, and sing, have a singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And so I'm sitting down there trying to be cool, and we start singing, and I say in my own head, what is this? (laughs) I've never heard anything like this before, and I'll be honest, again, I'm trying to look cool. I had a hard time controlling my emotions in that moment, and it was the first time in my entire life when a singing was over that I didn't want it to be over. Um, I could have kept on singing, maybe not for all eternity, but for quite a while after that. And maybe you've not had an experience exactly like this, where you can barely hear your own voice and much less distinguish your voice from everybody else. But what we experience here when we come together to worship God in song is pretty special too. too. And maybe if you grew up here or in a congregation like this one where the singing is so good and we have so many voices, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's harder to see and appreciate how special it really is. 
I was talking with someone who had recently visited our services for the first time, and he had asked someone else who wasn't a member here who had also visited with us, I think actually at a funeral, but they had they'd visited at, at some occasion where we were assembled together, and, and the question was asked by him to this other one. He said, what's up with the no instruments thing? Uh, he felt like he could ask that about from somebody who wasn't a member here. Uh, and among other things, this lady said to him, when she visited, we all started singing and she thought to herself, you know, this is what heaven must sound like. Why? Because we have a few professionally trained singers on a stage. There weren't any. Or was it because everyone was singing together in praise to our God? Now, I want to be clear, that's that's not bragging. It's not intended to be bragging to our visitors. Instead, I tell you that, relate that story to you because I want our members who are members here, I want us to appreciate what we have. And it's a call for all of us, both those who might be visiting this morning, but also those who are members here, to appreciate God's biblical design for New Testament worship. We look around at what Leon Manning used to call Christendom, all those who call themselves Christians. And we see that in many churches, worship and song has become more performance-oriented instead of participation-oriented. This is uh, just an example of something I pulled off the Internet. Uh, It's blurred out, so I'm not trying to call anyone out specifically with this. But this is a worship service. And we see the people on the stage, we see somebody playing a guitar up there, and, and we see all of the people down uh, below the level of the stage who are, um, who are singing, I assume, but, but certainly intending to worship. And there's, we see in many places, a band or other trained performers up on a stage singing to an audience instead of with a congregation. And the performers in situations like this are usually bathed in light while everybody else in the congregation is in darkness. And congregational singing is drowned out by those who can sing well, who have microphones or a choir maybe in some instances who are trained and have practiced to sing in this way. Or, or everybody is silenced so that we can listen to one person sing a solo perhaps. And the singing itself often is drowned out by, by, I already messed this word up in Bible class, musicians playing instruments of music. And sadly, these changes from what we see in the New Testament are also sometimes accompanied by a worship service that has become more focused on the talents of man than the praise of God. Now, not always. I want to be... I can't read anybody's heart, and I can't read the hearts of those who perform in this way. But I think if we're being honest, we can all probably see the dangers of this, can't we? At least acknowledge that there's a danger here that it could become more about men and our performance than it is about God and praise to Him. Um, And I don't think I have to give specific examples, though I have some in my conversations with people who... Uh, are part of a number of different denominations where that has become the case at different times. And maybe if you're visiting with us this morning, or, or maybe even if you've asked this question of yourself, maybe say, okay, is that why y'all don't use instruments in your worship to God in song? And in part, yes. That is part of the reason why we don't. But also, the writers of the New Testament do not mention any use of mechanical instruments in worship of the early church, and positively, what are we commanded to do? Well, we are commanded in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 in this way. Read Colossians 3, 16 and 17 in your Bible or up on the board here with me. Verses 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. And then the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not a command for a few who can sing well to sing to everybody else. It's a command for all who would worship God in song to sing to one another and to God from the heart. And we notice that these two passages parallel exactly with one another, or almost exactly, uh, with the similar phraseology that's used in the two passages. Uh, I, I won't read them again. You can see the parallels there. And it's interesting to me that something struck me recently. Why did the old timers use the phrase, we don't use mechanical instruments of music? Um, I've always thought, mechanical, why mechanical instruments of music? Because I would suggest that we here at this congregation, and you think about churches of Christ, we do have an instrument. It's, it's just not a piano or a guitar or a harp. Who can play one of those kinds of instruments? Raise your hand. Play piano. You played trumpet in band. Uh, raise them pretty high. I want everybody to see. Who can play those kinds of instruments? We've got lots of people who can play those kinds of instruments. But I want to suggest this morning there's an instrument that every single one of us can play. I want you to notice especially here in the text in Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, this phrase that's translated making melody in the New King James and another a number of other translations, that's that Greek word solo. And though by the first century it had become synonymous with this idea of singing, uh, the original etymology of that word it originally meant, if you think back in ancient Greek, even before the first century, it originally meant to pluck or to play. So what is it that we are plucking or playing like an instrument? What is the instrument that every single one of us I, I play guitar very, very poorly and piano even worse. I would not raise my hand to say I play an instrument. But there is an instrument that I can play. What is it in this passage? What are we playing, making melody in and with our hearts? And that is the instrument that God intends for every single child of His to play in worship to Him. And so I encourage us all Play it loud, brethren. Post-apostolic writers, so those writers who wrote right after the apostles after the end of the first century, they were not only silent about the use of mechanical instruments in Christian worship. We don't see any examples of that. But some speak explicitly against their use. Origen in the second century, Eusebius in the third century, uh, Chrysostom in the fourth century, and others all condemn any use of instruments in worship. And there's some disagreement among historians as to when the first musical instrument, likely an organ, was introduced into the worship of the Catholic Church. Some think it was as late as the 10th century, a thousand years after Christ. But we know that their use was very unusual until at least 1250 A.D., when Thomas Aquinas, you've probably heard of him, the sainted Catholic doctor, he wrote, among other things, the church does not make use of musical instruments, such as harps and psalteries, in the divine praises for fear of seeming to imitate the Jews. Now, his reason would be different than mine. I don't care about imitating the Jews one way or the other. I care about what the New Testament says. But it was at the very least unusual in 1250 when this was written for churches to use instruments in their worship. Even that name for singing without instruments, a cappella, right? So that's a word that we use not just in a worship sense, but there are a cappella groups that are out there. Straight No Chaser came to Lufkin. All the music they make is with their voices, right? A cappella. Well, that phrase, a cappella, is from Latin and Italian origin. It means in the manner of the chapel, or we might say in the church style. In the style they sing in church, it's a cappella. It's without instruments. So that's the reason. And, and if you've been a part of this congregation, or maybe you, you grew up in uh, churches of Christ, you're familiar with Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 and those things, and, and you're familiar with all of that. 
That's not really the question I want to... I do want to address that this morning, but, but I want us to go beyond that this morning. Why? I believe that God chose this. The Jews worshipped with instruments. The pagans worshipped with instruments. And then God is specific that all of us together are supposed to sing praises to Him. And just because God commands it, that's reason enough for us to do it. But have you ever thought about the reason why? I believe that we have some indication from the text as to why. And I want to suggest that it's not that it sounds better or any matter of taste or opinion. What is it about a cappella singing that's better for worship to God? Well, some people, and I've heard Christians say this, well, you know, I just think it sounds better. It sounds better for us to worship without instruments. Well, that's, that's your opinion, right? And other people would say, well, I think, I think music sounds better when they're singing with instruments. It's not a matter of tradition. It's not a matter of your opinion or my opinion. That's not the issue. And neither is it an issue, as has become the case in many churches. Well, you've got your preference, I have mine, so we're going to offer two services. We've got a traditional service where there's more singing, and then we've got a contemporary service where it's more a band and a performance. And you worship God that way, you worship God this way. It's a matter of what God set up and His purpose behind setting up worship in this way. I want to suggest this morning that we can see the wisdom of God in the unity that singing together in worship both demands and encourages. God wants us to be together. He wants us to be better together. And one of the mechanisms that He has put in place to see that that happens is congregational worship in song where all of us are singing praises to Him. In three areas, we see the beautiful unity of singing and worship. We see unity within myself, within each one of us, ourselves, with my brethren, and then unity with God. And so I want us to consider these three things and sing three songs that go along with them. First, we see unity within myself. Within me, within Reagan, there is unity when I am worshiping God in song. And we've already talked about the heart as it appears there in Colossians and Ephesians. Notice what other parts of human beings God cares about. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, we see that Paul says to the brethren in Thessalonica, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart as holy. You're different because you're a Christian. And may sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a few of us men got together. Harold was there, and and, uh, Brent was there, and maybe a, a few others have come in and out. We did a study on spirit, soul, and body and say, okay, what are these three words talking about? And you know what conclusion we came to? They're all part of us, right? But trying to differentiate between those three is really kind of difficult, especially this idea of spirit and soul. But what is it that Paul is trying to communicate to the brethren in Thessalonica here? He says, I want you to be sanctified completely, that all of you is set apart, made holy for service to God. And where in our worship do we see that most clearly? I would suggest it is when we worship God in song. In this moment, in this moment of singing together, in this moment of song, my whole self, Reagan's whole self, can be focused on and participating in worshiping God. My mind, my will, my emotions, and my physical body. Singing draws all parts of us into fellowship and teaching and encouraging and praise. My physical part and my spiritual part, my reason and my emotions, my heart, and my soul. And I'm actively participating with all parts of me more in song than in any other part of our worship service. So what we're going to do is uh, Daniel is going to lead us in number 128. Uh, If you want to take out your songbook, you can do that. You can follow along on the screen. 
take my life and let it be. And, and really this song communicates that idea of our whole life, spirit, soul, and body is given over and sanctified by God. But as we do, as we sing this song, I want to encourage you to physically participate as much as possible. I sit right here, and so you can see me. Um, you're probably not looking at me, but you can see me. I do, uh, I do a lot of this. Uh, I do a lot of this. <laughs> I do a lot of moving around there. What I want to encourage you to do is don't be like me, as I usually am. I worked hard on that this morning because I was preaching this lesson. I want you to participate physically. Sit up straight. Deep, breathe deeply. Uh, if it's appropriate to smile, then smile. Close your eyes to focus on the words if that helps. But participate physically as much as possible. And mentally participate as much as possible. Focus on the words and their meaning. Take my life and let it be is a hymn that, that most of us are probably pretty familiar with. What are the words and meaning of this song? Emotionally participate as much as possible. Uh, these aren't just words that I understand. These are words that have application to me and my life and my relationship with God. What am I committing myself to? How should I feel about that? And then spiritually participate as much as possible. Remember that we are all singing these words as a prayer. That's what this song is, as a prayer to the God of the universe who is here and listens and answers. So physically participate, mentally participate, emotionally participate, and spiritually participate as we sing this song together. that I should have with my brethren. On Wednesday night in the auditorium class, we're studying those one another passages, and we see that in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, right? We are teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're singing to the Lord, but we're also singing to one, one another. I turned my mic off just so y'all wouldn't hear me singing earlier. We're also speaking to ourselves, to yourselves, to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so we're participating with one another and speaking to one another in the things that we're doing. So I want to think about it in these terms, that singing is an act of unity, right? It shows that we're unified when we're singing to God together. But singing is also a unifying act. It is an act of of worship that we do together that helps us to be unified when we do that. It shows that we are unified, but it also helps us to be unified. As we submit to one another in the fear of God, and all of our voices are blended into one voice. Um, I see why James used to sit on the front row. 
I didn't have any distractions right there, and that was great as I was singing just a moment ago. And I'm not asking you to move to the front. That's, I wouldn't be so bold. I'm very bold up here, but I wouldn't be that bold. But I do think that there's something to that idea of removing distractions or trying to remove distractions. And that's one of the things that singing inherently does. Have you ever thought about that? We don't always have perfect unity with one another. We don't always get along perfectly with one another. And sometimes we even have conflict with other Christians with whom we are worshiping in the same room, in the same building of the same God. But singing draws our focus away from the distraction that other people can be in that moment or in our relationships with them and to the unity that we have in Christ. Nobody says, or I assume nobody says, listening as we're all singing together, there it is. I heard it. There's that voice of that hypocrite right there. You hear hear it? Oh, there it is right there. Because in that moment, what are we doing? We're all saying the same things. We're teaching the same things. We are singing in praise the same things to God. And in an assembly like this, our voices are not 200 and whatever voices. They are one voice singing together in praise to God. That's what it is supposed to be. Um, We are so blessed with the leaders that we have and the enthusiasm of the members in the congregation that make that possible, where we can blend together in one voice. And that's part of why the trend toward performance worship, worship as a, a form of entertainment, is so damaging to what we're trying to do. Again, God commands something different, But we can see the damage that can be uh, found in that style of worship to God. Um, It becomes about one voice or a few voices instead of all of our voices becoming one. And for us specifically, you notice we have a stage, right? Um, We don't call it that. That's what this is, a raised platform. uh, And it's stadium seating down here. And we have somebody who comes up and leads us. And um, this is not an indictment on our leaders. Our leaders do a great job with this. But that's why it is so important for a song leader to be that, a song leader, not a performer, not someone who makes it all about them and what they're doing and puts the focus on himself. No, singing is, is not about one voice over many. It is about many voices becoming one voice. And the amazing thing about singing is even when we have different languages, we can be united in song. You can be unified in the song based on the tune, even if the words are in a different language. I've I've been dreading this part of the lesson. Here's where I sing. You ready? (laughs) You're waiting. Moni's waiting. Feliz cumpleaños a ti, feliz cumpleaños a ti, feliz cumpleaños a ti, feliz cumpleaños a ti. What song was I singing? Happy birthday. Well, do you speak Spanish? Some of you do. But for those of you who don't speak Spanish, how did you know? The tune, right? That's the way that birthday song goes. How about this one from a more spiritual song? Sublime gracia del Señor. You know that song? Yeah. And the words, uh, the phrase is actually a little bit different in Spanish. Um, It is actually in Spanish, the first line, Amazing grace of the Lord. But you knew that sentiment, didn't you? Who here has ever worshipped with Christians in another language? Uh, Yeah, many of us have. Uh, My family and I visited Puerto Rico earlier this year, and we spent some time there with some good friends of ours. And the father of this family is a preacher, uh, but he preaches in Spanish, not in English. And we had the opportunity while we were there to worship with them in Spanish. It is not a bilingual congregation. It's a Spanish congregation. 
And so we went and visited with them. And the lesson was a struggle for Stephanie and I, even though we each know a little bit of Spanish. It meant nothing to our girls because they know how to count in Spanish, a few other things, that's about it. But then, all of a sudden, we sang. And we were all singing the same thing to one another and to God, even though it was in a different language. And there are even congregations that are like this. I know of a congregation in Long Beach, California, where it is a bilingual congregation. And the way they handle that is they all worship together in song. They partake of the Lord's Supper together. And then when it comes time for the lesson, they divide up and half go, or roughly half go and listen to a lesson in Spanish. The other half go and listen to a lesson in English. But when they come together to worship, Spanish, English... They can all worship together. Um, that's beautiful, isn't it? And that's the way God intended it originally. Do you remember before the Tower of Babel, how many languages were there? One. Everyone spoke the same language. And then at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, how many languages could they speak as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit? As many as they needed to, right? Right? All of these people from all over the world said, how is it that we hear them speaking in our own language, these mighty things of God? And so God is showing that His intention all along was for people of all nations and all tribes and all tongues, all languages to worship Him together. And that's what the church is made up of, his universal church that we've talked about many times, right? All Christians everywhere. Well, all Christians everywhere, most of them, I would say, do not speak English. They speak other languages. And yet we're all part of the same church. We all worship the same God. And that's what God intended. And when we get to heaven, whatever the official language of heaven is, that's how we're going to worship God. Turn to the book of Revelation, if you would. Revelation chapter 5. I understand that this is symbolic, right? These are not literal things, but there are images, they are symbols to help us understand the way things are supposed to be. I do not know, I do not know what our body is literally going to be like in heaven. I don't know if we're literally going to be singing to God in heaven. But that image of song is supposed to communicate an image to us of what our unity is supposed to be like. In Revelation chapter 5, in chapter 4 we see this throne scene. In chapter 5 we see the Lion of Judah who is the Lamb who is slain, who can open the scrolls. And so they sing praises to the Lamb, to Jesus. And in verse 9 it says, And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll." And to open its seals, for you were slain and have been redeemed and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now, in my Bible, probably in yours too, that's set aside to show that this is poetry, right? This is the song that they were singing, or at least an excerpt of that song. And in that song, it says, You have redeemed by your blood out of every tribe and, nation, and tongue and people and nation. All people from all languages are worshiping God together in song. Verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We will all have and speak the same language in heaven and we will use it to sing the same song of Moses and the Lamb with one voice. And as we continue in the book of Revelation, we see this again and again. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of what? All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One more passage. Revelation 15 and verses 3 and 4. John sees another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. With this great sea before the throne of God. And in verse 3 it says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And so we see them worshiping before God. There we will have one language and perfect unity, praising our God together for all eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And so we're going to sing two songs now. First, we'll sing Amazing Grace together, and then we will stand and sing the new song after that. So first, Amazing Grace together.
new song.
seated. Uh, as an invitation song, we're going to sing here in just a moment when we all get to heaven. Um, but before we do, I want to notice one last unity, um, and that is unity with our God. Again, in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, we see at the very beginning, it says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And in Ephesians 5, it says, be filled with the Spirit, God and His Spirit and His will and His Word and all of the things of God are what my heart and mind and life is to be filled with. And that's why I sing, because I am filled with God and His Word and His Spirit in this way. I know Him and I imitate Him and I follow Him. His will has become my will. And there is that little section that we talked about in our last point about how we're singing to and with one another, but the rest of this verse is all about God and addressed to God and doing things in Christ's name that I have the authority to worship in this way because Christ um, has commanded it. But there is more even than this. If you'll turn to one final passage, to John chapter 4 in the Gospels, the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter. John chapter 4 and verse um, 20 and following, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, she says in verse 19, rightly of Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so she has a religious question for him. She says, Our father worshipped on this mountain, that's where the Samaritans worship, and you Jews say in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Jerusalem is the right place to worship right now. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Where is God to be worshipped? Well, in the law of Moses, it was in Jerusalem. But Jesus says those external physical things are passing away and something else is coming. What is important in the covenant of Christ is not our physical location, but worshipping God in spirit and truth together. And involved in this is a very real concern for and focus on God and the spiritual. We are entering into the presence of God to be in fellowship with Him. Not all of us like to sing. And the biggest reason why some of us don't sing or don't sing out is because we're self-conscious about it. Uh, I don't sing well, we say, or I don't like people hearing me sing and so forth. That's all physical. The fact is, focusing on myself in this way makes worship about me and my limitations and my insecurities and my desires instead of God and what He desires. And that is no better than seeking entertainment or worshiping with mechanical instruments or, or saying, what can I get out of it? What's, what's in it for me in worship? Worship is primarily and fundamentally about God. And if God desires and commands me to sing, then Reagan McClenney needs to sing. I want to sing for him and for his sake, not for my own voice, as bad or as good as it might sound. This is a chance that we've all had to express our unity with God. Singing shows that we are filled with God, His Spirit, His Word, and His things, that He is the priority for us, not worldly considerations like how good my voice sounds. And so we come to Him with a deep-seated reverence and awe and love, leading me to do His will and express that in song. And singing should be, perhaps above all else, an expression of our thanks to God for what He has done. And we burst into song and praise in our gratitude and in anticipation of seeing God face to face. I began the lesson talking about this image of heaven and singing to God for all eternity. I, I don't know if that's what we're going to do, literally, right? You know, in Revelation, in these passages that we talked about, we also see some other things there in the images that are being used. We also see that there are God harps. I don't know what a God harp is. I know we don't have them here, but there are God harps, and there are 144,000 who are Jewish 
men virgins who are playing these god harps as we sing to God in heaven? That's all imagery. And I doubt very seriously if that's a literal thing. And so singing, I I don't know if that's a literal thing we're going to be doing in heaven. But here's what I do know. When we sing together in worship, that is supposed to be a glimpse of the unity that we have. The unity within ourselves when we are made perfect and given a new perfect body without sin and without death. Unity with one another, with those who are saved and who love God, who are there in heaven, with only those who are committed to God and love Him, the people that we love the most, the people who love us the most, because they love like God. And unity with God, where we see Him face to face. That's what singing is supposed to give us a picture and a glimpse of. And I hope it does. And I hope, maybe, you have a little bit more desire to go and be there because because of what it offers. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. You don't have that unity, not with yourself, not with others, not with God, that you could have in a relationship with Him if you'll come and put Christ on in baptism. If you're already a Christian and you realize that you, too, have been misplaced in the things you've emphasized in your life, and you want to make those things right, we want you to come now. And we're going to stand and sing a song in order to do that. And this is the song that is my desire and God's desire, that for all those who sing this song here in just a second, that all of us will be in heaven with Him. So will you stand and sing this song with me?